Good evening, everybody. And I want to say, first of all, thank you all for making uh, Joey really feel at home. I didn't get to talk to him a whole bunch because we went over to Daryl and uh, Susan's and met Mercy, or their dog Mercy. And all I know is Joey had a steak big enough to fill up one plate. He had to eat it before he could put anything else on his plate. It was so big. So thank you all for uh, feeding us. And he said it was the first home-cooked meal he had since he got home, which is true. Uh, so thank you, Susan and Daryl. But I know he felt really at home. Matter of fact, when, when I kind of mentioned to him, number one, that we were going to be eating afterwards at their house, he said, well, yeah, I'd be willing to do it. I'm thinking, okay, he wants a steak dinner. But I think he wanted to be here. He wanted to be here this morning and, and really made him feel at home. Uh, the good news is, is he's on leave for about 56 days, figuring out some things So with pay. So he's happy about that. And um, he's got his car, so he drove here in the car. Then he took Karen home. So I'm sure they were having fun going down 412 towards I know that I'm sure she was like hoping on him for her life. Not that he drives crazy or anything, but it's definitely not like driving my truck. And um, the mechanic that worked on it last week, I had him just do some stuff, you know, to maintain it. That's been really sitting there for a whole year outside of starting. Uh, Chris is probably about 52, but he's... He's a little bit more rounder than I am, I'm just saying. So I already told him, I said, well, I kind of fall into it and roll out. He goes, oh, I rolled out all right. He said, but he's got a nice rod, you know, the 370Z. So, so Joey really felt at home, and uh, it was a long Saturday. He was supposed to be in by 2 that afternoon, and all I know is I was there in Oklahoma City by 1230 at the National Guard Air Base, and I was told he's not coming in yet. Then he starts communicating whenever he could, you know, how the military is. You get information when you get it. And so I'm there basically sitting, sitting in a driveway of a Love's or a 7-Eleven or somewhere where I don't get in trouble loitering. And I'm sleeping in the truck. I'm drinking in the truck. I'm eating in the truck till midnight. Midnight, so from noon 30 to midnight, I'm hanging out at some gas station in my truck. And I'm getting more exhausted, more exhausted. So finally, they get in at 2. We didn't leave the building until about 3.30 because he had to get his rucksacks. And then we didn't. Uh, by the time I got about I-40 and Okima, uh, a love station, I started seeing lines just blurred. I was like, oh. So I pulled over. I remembered that loves when I had a nursing home there. And, and so I kind of woke him up. And he said, what? I said, well, I said, I'm going to have to take a nap for about 30 minutes. I said, so go in there, use the bathroom. Well, he got something to eat. And being military, he got something to eat and drink. He said, I'm awake now. So he drove from Okima all the way to Inola. I just kind of just saw blurs. But anyways, it was a good long conversation that we had, though, me and uh, Joey and I, just getting to hear his voice and hear some things. He, one of the things he is going to focus on, at least the next year, he's going to go right back into the funeral honors, or at least for a year, and do that full time. So... And then we found out today, we, talk, we talked to his sister Faith yesterday evening, just talking uh, over the phone, kind of FaceTime. And she's got spring break in April up there in Minnesota. So she's going to fly down that Monday, the 15th of April, and spend some of the week with him and uh, do some stuff like that. So she's looking forward to uh, seeing her little brother. I'm sure they'll go plinking guns and riding in his 370Z and just all kinds of fun stuff. But yeah, we're going to have him around the house for quite a while, and he's figuring out, he said one of the things he's going to do this afternoon is kind of go through his rucksack and start unfolding clothes and figure out what's really clothes he can wear. It was funny, the jeans he was wearing today, he wears a 32, 36, but there on base you couldn't find anything longer than 34, so he was wearing high waters, and, and he said he was a little embarrassed. I said, well, you look fine, you know, but 
Anyways, we're really enjoying having our baby at home uh, right now. And thank you all for really making him feel at home. And I just want to tell you another thing as your pastor. Thank you for letting my wife be feel like she's at home too. That, that makes my day, makes her day. It makes us know that we're in the right place. It's not that anybody else never treated her different or wrong or anything. But I'm going to tell you, so I've, I see some of y'all engaging her. And I don't have to be present. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that very much. So if you would, please turn to Nehemiah chapter 7. Now, we're not going to go through all of chapter 7 because that's 73 verses of a lot of names that I will slaughter. But we're going to go through verse 1 through 6, and then we're going to go through verse 66 to 73 to, to get, a, get a caption of what this chapter 7 is all about. And uh, in this story, Nehemiah is registering the returning exile people, the people that have been put in exile. And remember the whole reason why Jerusalem was in exile and possibly in slavery and in, in other nations. Why was that? Well, because they had forgotten God. They had began to build, uh, not only worship God, but build temples to worship other gods because they wanted to appease everybody. And they, they, they strayed. And part of the consequence was of that is they, they were taken over. They were attacked and Jerusalem was demolished. And now... Nehemiah realizes it's time to register the returning exiled people, the people that have been in slavery or maybe in a pagan country like himself uh, to his king. And so this last time we looked at Nehemiah, he had been being distracted, harassed, threatened by the resistors of God's will uh, to rebuild these walls. And, and when he was distracted and threatened by them, four times and one with an official letter, so five times. Nehemiah's response was, he told them, look, as the resistors of God's work and will, I will not entertain your confusion. I will not entertain your, your doubts pulling me off to, to, to be distracted from what I'm doing, what God's called me to do. I won't, I won't be distracted or entertain any of your lies. He basically told them, look, I'm going to stay focused. I'm going to stay here. And I'm going to finish and complete what God's called me to do. You can call me out to the Valley of Oh No, and we already kind of teased about that. That's not a good place to be. Oh No, right? And you just can't do it. And then they brought this formal letter and everything, casting long shadows. And Nehemiah said, no, I'm not going to be distracted by it. You're not going to do that. I'm going to focus. So today, part of that focus, as Nehemiah has already rebuilt the walls last time and that they hadn't put in all the gates and everything, Today, Nehemiah moves forward with God's will, God's work, to rebuild God's place, the place of worship for God, so that they can worship God, and he does it for the sake of the people. He continues that. That's what we're going to find out today as he moves forward. In verse 1 through 3, uh, well, let's just do this. Stop, Steve. Chapter 7, let me read verse 4 through 6 if you want to stand. For the reading of God's word, we'll read verse 4 and 6, and then I'll have prayer. <clears throat> now, the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few. In other words, there were very few people. And the houses were not rebuilt. In other words, they had no house to live in. Then God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come 
in the first return, in other words, the first wave of those returning out of exile, and found written in it, these are the people of the providence who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, may you help us to uh, make sense of it, make application of it, and may you have your way in our hearts and in our spirits and our minds to renew us, to refresh us, to correct us and instruct us, to encourage us and to equip us to do the work of the church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Nehemiah registers the returning exile, these, these other returning exiles, uh, people. So in verse 1 through 3, as he does that, Nehemiah secures the boundaries. In verse 1 through 3, Nehemiah secures the boundaries. Look at verse 1 through 3 with me in chapter 7. Then it was when the wall was built. Remember earlier they were all built, but some of the gates were missing. Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, all these people that were in charge of, of worship. Then I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel or the, the temple. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. The first thing Nehemiah does as he as he resists the resistors and says, I won't be distracted by you. I won't listen to your confusing lies. I'm just going to let you slander me all you want to. I'm busy at God's work. You don't have any part of this. Then it says he rebuilt the walls and at this time began to put in the gates. You know, it's one thing to build a wall. It'd be like if we had all these walls and the doors were wide open, right? Number one, the weather would get in, right? And then number two, if there were no doors, anybody could come in which we want an open-door policy, right? We don't want just anybody in. And, of course, they were dealing with some people. They didn't want in their city. Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and all those people, those that were threatening, those that were spreading rumors, those that were trying to resist and delay and ultimately destroy uh, the work of God. And so the boundaries, first of all, as he secured the boundaries, the boundaries were hung the doors were hung to discourage the outsiders, okay? Those doors were hung to discourage those that were outside of God's will. And they hung those doors to protect the inside, right? So they're protecting the inside from the outside. The boundaries that he hung was there to discourage the outsiders. Now listen, at my house, I, get, I used to get phone calls about all kinds of security systems, and if you know anything about me here recently, I get a lot of spam risk calls that are about, I don't know, my life insurance, my Medicare. I mean, I get all kinds. And, 
And definitely, they're definitely not from Texas or Oklahoma, the people talking to me. So I mess with them all the time. I've been messing with legitimate phone calls and spam phone calls for a long time, and I have fun with them. But one night, Joey was probably about maybe 13 years old. He was sitting on the couch, and maybe we were watching some NFL football game. My phone goes off. Hello, and I do the speaker thing. And it's someone trying to sell me a security system for my house. And they're talking about having 5G and, you know, 5G and the Wi-Fi and everything. And I listened to the speech for a little while. And I said, well, I already have a security system. I said, I have a 12G DB. They said, there's no such thing as 12G. Only 5G is a new thing. I said, no, I have a 12-gauge and a deadbolt. And the guy hung up on me. So, so I like to play around. But the point is, is remember, this is what my daddy told me one time. He said, locks are to keep honest people out, right? My, my grandsons like to go to my toolbox and climb in the back of the truck. And they're jerking on that lock. I say, hey, 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 locks are made for honest people. Stay out. Stay out of that. Leave poppies. Lock alone. It's so cool. They're just banging around. They're climbing on the truck, you know. I'm like, ah, oh, little boys, you know. But listen, he sets these boundaries, these, these hung doors to discourage outsiders, okay? One of the things we did at our house, my house, all three doors that you could enter in, have glass by the door. In other words, you could break the glass, undo the deadbolt, and walk in, right? So now at every one of my doors, we have a two-keyed side deadbolt. Now, you either have to have your key in your pocket to unlock or where I hide the key, and I won't tell you that. No, I'm just kidding. But we just put them in a coffee cup close to that general area. But that way it just discourages people. Even if they broke my window, they wouldn't be able to unlock unless they had a key. Well, he's hanging these doors to discourage the outsiders, did you know that we hang some standards and some boundaries, do we not, to discourage outsiders from coming in and maybe creating new standards? One of the things, bless Miss Carolyn's heart, I meant to announce that I would not be doing the orientation class until the first Sunday of April, but I didn't announce it. And she came, bless her heart, she was faithful. And, uh, but but one, of the th one of the first things we're going to deal with in the first week is like, why do we even have a set of bylaws? Why do we need a Baptist faith and message to articulate what we believe if we have the Bible? Well, the answer to the first one, why we have constitutional bylaws, is to keep order. To have a standard of order. However we rearrange the bylaws, it's to keep a standard of order. Well, then why do we need a Baptist faith and message, June 14, 2000, to, to, to articulate what we say the Bible believes? Well, so we have a standard of some basics of some essentials. We put those boundaries in here. That's why we have bylaws to operate by law. That's why we have a, a statement of faith to say these are some basic things we believe in God's word other than the fact that we believe all of God's word, but it systematizes some things that we say we believe. That's why we have that. Well, Nehemiah was hanging these doors as a standard. The standard was to at least Sam Ballot and Tobiah, you're an outsider. Unless you're willing to participate in what's going on here and support what's going on here because they even had other people from other nations, remember, giving and contributing even working. So they could have. But otherwise, you're an outsider, so there's a standard here. If you come through those doors, it's our standard. If you don't, stay outside those doors, those boundaries. So the first thing Nehemiah did as he secured the boundaries, the boundaries of the doors that were being hung were to discourage the outsiders. But also he hung these doors and created a boundary of servants. 
Remember he said there, he said there in verse, uh, verse 1, as they hung the doors, also they had gatekeepers, singers, and Levites had been appointed. They began to appoint leadership for the purpose of worship and for watching the gates from the outsiders. So as he secured the boundaries of the doors to discourage the outsiders, he set in place servants to encourage and serve the insiders, the ones that were willing to live by the standards. And last but not least, he said he put this one particular person, a brother that was faithful, feared God. He put in place faithful people. Faithful people he chose so that they would honor God. The first thing we see is Nehemiah <clears throat> secures the boundaries of the city. He does it to protect us from the outsiders. He does it for the purpose of serving the insiders for worship. And he placed faithful leadership in there who would protect God's glory, God's reputation, <coughs> God's work, and God's worship. So he secures boundaries. I wrote this down in my notes. To have a standard is to have an order. And that's what I mentioned before. The Constitution bylaws is there to create order of how we do business. The Baptist faith and message is there to articulate specific things that we systematically say we believe the Bible teaches and we want to preserve, like family, the Bible, God, salvation. So to have a standard, whether it's our bylaws or our, or our uh, Baptist faith and message that, that's all based off this authoritative book, right, the ultimate standard, to have a standard is to have order. If we didn't have bylaws and a constitution to, like, like the one Wednesday night we had a business meeting, I read our covenant. Why did I read our covenant? And I'm going to do that every business meeting. It reminds us of what we say we, we make a covenant to do. It reminds us of who we say we are. And then, of course, all those bylaws and nominee committees and everything, they're there how we've organized ourselves and everything. So we have some kind of order. And so if, so if all of a sudden I go, Hey, I want to put in chandeliers. Okay, pastor, that's great. Good for you. You got money for chandeliers. However, though, you might want to go through the buildings and grounds first. So some kind of order. Otherwise, I guess I'd come in here and say, well, I'm paying for it, Gail. I don't care what you say. I put in chandeliers. And Gail goes, okay, now we've got to pay to maintain them. But nobody ever had a voice. So we have those bylaws. We have that constitution to remind ourselves who we are and how we order ourselves in our business. And we have that standard of the Baptist path and message to say these are some basic, very essential things that we believe the Bible teaches as the standard, the Bible. So to have a standard is to have order. And Nehemiah began to set some standards. We're not just going to rebuild the walls, but we're putting in doors to protect ourselves from outsiders. Then we're going to appoint gatekeepers, singers, and Levites so we can protect the worship and have singers and Levites to do worship. He set some standards, and then ultimately he appointed a particular person but that feared God for the very purpose of finding a faithful man that would protect and honor and defend the glory of God. Nehemiah set the boundaries. He set them by certain standards, adore, servants, faithful people. He secures the boundaries. Then in verse 4 through 6, as he registers the returning of other exiled people. In verse 4 through 6, Nehemiah records the names. 
He records the names. Look at verse 4 through 6 with me in chapter 7. Now the city was large. He's talking about Jerusalem. And spacious. But the people in it were few. In other words, it wasn't as full as it once was, right? The, the walls just don't have as many people. And on top of that, he says, and their houses weren't even rebuilt, the people that were there. Then my God, then my God put into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people that they might be registered by genealogy, some kind of systematic way of having them uh, registered genealogy. And I found a register, in other words, I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come during the first return. And this is what I found written on it, he says. This is basically what it said before it named all the names and everything that we're not going to read. It says, these are the people of the providence who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who have returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. So he, gave, he found an example of how they were registered the first wave. And he records, and he, and he wants to record the names of those currently that were there. A large, spacious, few people, no homes. He's recording the names. Why is that so important? Well, with names, it defines needs. And therefore, it gives meaning to a vision. If I didn't know your names by now, what good would my vision be? to lead the church. I was, well, that guy, or that guy. No, if I know you by name, then I know more about your needs, the community's needs, and then I can cast a vision. I can lead direction. Nehemiah knew that if he recorded these other names that he's going to add there in verse 7 all the way to um, verse 60-something, 60 65, these names represented or came with needs, and they came with meaning. It gave them meaning. It didn't, wasn't just a number or, a, or that's the lady over there. No, that's the lady over there named Sherry Horton, married to Bill Horton. They have a name. They have meaning. They have purpose. These names came with needs, and, and it gave meaning to the vision that he was creating. With these names also came faces, faces and accountability within the vision because he knew their names where they were from. He could not only build a vision based off needs and ministry and, and have meaning, but those, those names had faces, and therefore it gave him accountability to carry out that vision. Can you imagine Nehemiah during all this time that Samballot and Tobiah over and over and over, constantly badgering him, constantly trying to threaten God's people? Had Nehemiah not known their names, put a face with it, how could he have carried out that vision and said, you need to build? But because he knew a name and a face, he could say, you need to build, Deborah, and put a, put, a, uh, put a hammer in one hand and put a sword in the other hand. Protect your mama. Brian, protect your wife. You know, he put faces with those things to cast that vision. That's why now he, he thinks it's important to register these names, register these faces. These names came with faces and accountability to the vision. They had needs, and it brought meaning to the vision. And with these names came history. History of not only the first wave that came, but now the, the wave that's here. 
These names came with history and therefore motivated the vision. The longer I stay here, the more I find out what has been happened before, not only before I just immediately came here, but even before. And that helps me to understand the history, especially if you've been part of that older history, even the downtown history. That helps me. That helps me to know where you've been, where you'd like to be, how you may fit within everything, how I may fit within it, what I do. Nehemiah recorded the names because those names had needs, meaning, faces, accountability. And they had a history which motivated him to carry on with the vision. Had he not been connected to his people, somehow, through name, face recognition, and some kind of history, how could he have led them anywhere? And listen, he built the boundaries from the outsiders to help the insiders, chose those who chose the glory of God, and he said, you know what? God has put on my heart, now that we've done this, now that we're starting to reestablish some leadership and, and some semblance of, of headed towards worship, he said, we need some names, we need some faces, and we need to record it, just like they did in the past during that first wave with Nebuchadnezzar, and they came back. We need to do the same thing. Why? Because it helps you keep track. One of the things, and I'll do this next tomorrow morning sometime, I'll ask Jill to reprint out the church directory, as we call it. You know, the church directory got your name, contact. She's going to reprint that out for me sometime tomorrow or Tuesday. And, you know, I'm going to tell you why. Because every month that I've been here, she's always printed out a new one every month. And during the month of December was an even month, okay? And during that even month, it helped me put a place and a name and a face and a contact so that during that even month, I was trying to make as many home visits to senior adults and therefore homebound people that I could. So that when she printed off January, she printed off a clean one, and I put a few notes from that, one, that directory over to this directory so I could find Roger Norris's house the next month because that directions to his house is very specific. But I transferred that over, and during that, during that odd month of January, everybody got a letter from their pastor that I had at least a record of, of your name and contact information. So that during the month of February, I repeated the idea of visiting the homebound, visiting some more senior adults, or making special visits like when I went to see uh, Jasmine and Jay. And she was holding Jackson, and Junalee's never done this for me. She didn't like me a whole bunch when she first saw me. But when Mama's holding Jackson, that means Junalee's not getting held, right? And when I was sitting there visiting, Junalee came out of her little bedroom, kind of all starry-eyed from a nap. And she looked over there and saw Mama holding Jackson, probably thinking, hmm, you know, a little look on her face. Then she looked at me and smiled. Uh, now she wanted Brother Steve, and she sat in my lap for 20 minutes. And I just talked to her. She didn't say a word. But listen, if I didn't have their name and address and know something about them and go visit them, there'd be no accountability. There'd be no reason for me to be here other than just pay me for Sunday morning, Sunday night to preach to you, and it'd save you a lot of money. And I can just keep me a full-time job somewhere else. That's not what we want here. We want your pastor to not sit in his ivory tower, but to be out amongst the sheep. And he recorded these names because they had needs. It, it put meaning to what he was doing. It made him more accountable because he put faces 
and, and, and history to those people. And that's why he's recording the names. So that's what I use with our church director. I use that to contact people. I know I'm still missing a few phone numbers here and there. We'll, we'll figure it out. But you know what? Nehemiah records the names. Why? To have a history is to have a future. You know, I don't mind you all telling me stories back when so-and-so was pastor. But that doesn't bother me at all. You know what that tells me? It tells me where you all been, what your leadership was doing. So I don't have a mind. I don't have a problem us looking in the back rearview mirror as long as that's not our only gaze. I mean, because we can learn some stuff there, right? Good, bad, or indifferent. We can learn some stuff. And then when we get on the road, we can go. We can go forward. Without a history, there's no future. Nehemiah tapped into the list of genealogy of the past exile people that returned. And he says, you know, we need to do the same thing with these people. Because it works. It works. And by the way, if you don't have my, my name, my address, or my phone number, not shame on you, shame on me. Call me 24-7. Now, I had someone tell me, oh, I wouldn't do that. I said, well, that's what that number's for. That's what my number's for. Any of you just want to shoot me a text, ask anybody in here that's got a text from me or a return text, I'll return a text. Now, you may text me at 3 in the afternoon. I may text you at 1130 that night. Or I'll text you something strange like I do Bill sometimes. I got this one little emoji that comes up, this little old man, he throws his walker away and he starts dancing. And I like one time I said, oh, there you are, Bill, after your surgery or something. He goes, this is crazy, you know. So me and Bill do some crazy swapping. But listen, Nehemiah records the names because it, it gives him a history. It gives him meaning. It gives him faces to connect with, to carry on an accountability of the vision, okay? So it's good to record the names. And that's how I use it to get to know you, put places and faces, and stories, and history to be more accountable to what God's called me to do, or more responsible. So in verse 1 through 3, Nehemiah secures the boundaries. In verse 4 through 6, Nehemiah records the names. Then we jump all the way, because this is the new names now, or the names of the former exile. Then we jump to verse 66 to 69. In verse 66 through 69... Nehemiah numbers the resources. He's got names over there. Now he's got resources. Remember what I told you earlier? One of the ways we're going to figure out what we're doing is we're going to stick our finger to the wind of the culture to find out where the culture is going. Not to, find the, not to follow the culture, but just to understand the culture that we live in. Okay? And as we understand the culture that we live in, to, to have a better discerning idea of what's going on in the world and how they're engaged and everything. Then we put our fingers to the pulse of the church and say, okay, that's a resource, that's a gift, that's a talent, that's a desire over here that someone's already involved in. Mm, okay, okay. And then once we realize the resources, then we can put our hands to the plow based on where the culture's going, what we're gifted and talented to do, put our hands to the plow, and we go. And we go because we're trying to discern the culture, we're trying to understand what we have. Well, that's what he's going to do here. He's going to number the resources that the people that are there, what kind of resources do they have? Look at verse 66 through 69. Altogether, the whole assembly was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 247 men and women singers. Their horses were 736. Their mules, 
245. Their camels, 435. And donkeys, 6,720. You go, well, very good, Pastor. You can read. But those were resources that these people had. These were singers for worship, animals like a blue ox working. These were resources. These were not only the people that were there as the whole assembly, but they also had male and female servants. These were resources. Nehemiah counts, first of all, in this count, as he numbers the resources, he counts the whole assembly. In other words, who's the whole assembly of, of God's people that are here? Then as he counts the whole assembly, then he includes the relationships to the servants that are connected to the whole assembly. And then he begins to add the possessions that the whole assembly and these servants have. Why is he doing that? Is it because he, he's an accountant's nightmare? No. He wants to know about the resources and check out the resources. The first two resources he mentioned was the whole assembly, people. They're servants, people. So the first resource that he even gives any kind of count to is the people. The donkeys will have their place. The camels will have their place. But who did he put at the top of the list? The whole assembly and their servants, the people. Let me tell you something as your pastor. You are my greatest resource for friendship, accountability, labor of the Lord's work, counsel, um, just keep naming it. You are, as the body, my greatest resource. Nehemiah counted the whole assembly. He included the relationships that were connected to the servants, and then he added up all the possessions that all these people, first and foremost, had. Why was he doing that? Well, he was doing that to create accountability towards the stewardship of what he was doing in his vision. He was making himself accountable to them, them to him, so that they could be better stewards with rebuilding the walls, setting up the gates, restoring worship. But if he didn't know who they were, and if he didn't remember what they had, then he wouldn't know what the resources are to lead him to rebuild the walls, hang the gates, and to restore worship. So he began to number the resources, People first, things last. He did this to have an accountability to list what they were stewards of. You know, we have finance committee meetings. We have business and grounds meetings. The activities ladies meet, uh, people meet. We have trustees meetings. We have deacons meetings. You know why? Because every one of them are responsible for something, right? Something somewhere. And therefore, we hold each other accountable in that group, in this group. And we even have church council, which is kind of a leadership of everything. And we kind of keep each other accountable on the calendar. And maybe what you're doing won't conflict with what I'm doing. And, and we just kind of work together. That's why we do that. And when we do those meetings, we're, we're tapping into resources. No matter what that committee does or that trustee group does, it's there to be a steward of our, of our, of our be accountable of what we have as resources for ministry, for practical ministry, for gospel ministry, for supporting missions, doing missionary-type work, and even in our own community. We have Sunday school classes that are doing things, and, and, they're, and, and we need to count them as part of that assembly, part of those relationships that are connected, so that 
when we find out their resources and this resource, maybe those two resources can work together. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to function together. And Nehemiah numbered the resources to add accountability to what they were stewards over. And last but not least, verse 70 through 73, as Nehemiah secures the boundaries from the outsiders for the insiders to create leadership that, that protects the honor of God, as he records the names that have faces and needs and, 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 and history so he can continue the vision, as he numbers the resources in verse 70 through 73, Nehemiah, check this out, because he's doing all these things, Nehemiah sees revival. He's ah, where's that in the text? Check this out. Verse 70 through 73. Because Nehemiah, God put these things on his heart to do this, Nehemiah is seeing revival. Verse 70 through 73. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. Now, you may not see that as an indication of revival, but listen to me. They gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, and 530 priestly garments. Some of the heads of the fathers of the houses gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachma and 2,200 silver minus. And that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000 silver minus, and 67 priestly garments. So the priests... The Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the Nithanim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. There is a revival going on here. You know why? Because their leader, Nehemiah, says, you know what? Now that we've got the walls built, let's protect ourselves from the outsiders that have been harassed us for a long time. Let's protect ourselves, and we'll set a standard there. And we're going to put leadership in place that will honor God's glory. We're going to set a standard here. And then I want to create a list of all you people so I understand the history, understand your needs, understand, get a face connected to that to carry on and be accountable as we look at the resources as a steward as to what God has called us to do. And when Nehemiah began to show that kind of leadership, people said, you know what? I'm the father of these houses. I need to contribute. They began to get busy. They didn't just say, well, that's what we hired Nehemiah to do. They got their hands, not only dirty building, not only dirty hanging doors, not only hanging a weapon in one hand and a tool in the other hand, they said, you know what, we're going to contribute to this thing. We're going to get involved. These leaders begin to step up and get, get, get involved. It showed a sign of revival, a sign of reviving the dream that we could once Worship the one and only true God again in the middle of Jerusalem. That's what it revived. It revived inspiration that although we've got a past and we understand our past, we can move forward and worship God once again. Although we have dishonored God through our own pagan, uh, pleasing behavior that led us into this, we can restore this thing. It brought revival. And listen, as he saw revival... That revival started with the leadership. It started with the leadership because it said there, and some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the 
work. It started at the top. Doesn't mean it can't start on the bottom, but in this case, it started at the top. They say, you know what? I'm buying into this thing. I'm buying in for the glory of God. I'm buying in to worship God. I'm buying in to secure the gates. I'm buying in. I'm going to give to it. Revival started with the, the leadership, and then as it started with the leadership, it spread throughout the leadership to other leaders of other houses. And then ultimately, because it said all the people, the singers, the Levites, and all some of the people and, and other people, it said that revival settled into the whole place. They all began to buy into what God was doing. You know, that takes time. How many, we, how many times we read there in Nehemiah that it seemed hopeless when Nehemiah was getting lamb-blasted, threatened? I mean, just start the, new, start the whole story. There's Nehemiah, a cupbearer to a pagan king, right? And all he said in that moment says, Lord, give me some favor when I meet this king again. And then God opened that opportunity providentially. He moved in the heart of that king, Proverbs 21.1. And Nehemiah is kind of looking sad, and that, that king goes, instead of saying, off with your head, you have a bad attitude. He just says, what's wrong, Ken? What's bothering you? And that king, Nehemiah, says, well, why wouldn't I be bothered? My people are scattered. The city where we worship God has been just devastated. And still that king saying, that's your problem. Off of his head, bring David in to test my cup. God continued to move in the waters of that king's heart. And he says, well, what can I do about it? And pretty soon, remember, he funded it. He gave him a special letter to get through the forest. He even gave him wood to build his own house. But originally when he was just saying, give me favor with this pagan king who you know has taken over, it seemed hopeless, didn't it? I don't know everything that you've gone through the last three years, but I'm sure there are times when things just didn't pan out the way you thought it was going to. You might have looked at your wife or the person next to you that just, I, I don't know. I don't know where the church is going to go. And then maybe Kim would give you some history of what it used to be and what, how, how it used to look back then, and that gave you a little, little encouragement. And some fat preacher from Manila says, I'll be your pastor if you let me drive 40 miles away and work the territory. And what I didn't know is that you all would end up knowing the guy that led me to the Lord. That gave, me, gave you some history. I didn't know that Miss Betty was sitting there, former first church of, I ever had. I didn't know that Valerie was related to one of my high school mates. And she's asking questions like, well, how funny was he in high school? Not very funny, you know. But it was just kind of interesting how God began to weave all these little things. And then my first Monday I'm here, I'm just talking to Brian because he's kind of, there's your check and everything. Oh, you're a fireman. Did you know Earl Blevins? Did you know, yeah, I don't know the people. It was just kind of weird. It was, it was weird to me. Because when I got home that night after you voted me in, I wept in my recliner. I just was, Karen goes, what's wrong? I, I said, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't deserve it. I don't know what God's doing. But yet it was exactly what I've been praying for. How God did it, I don't know. But you and I tried to keep the standards. We tried to have some kind of meaning and faces and, and people. You tried to keep it kind of control of your resources, and I kept control of mine. But God brought it together. Why? Because God wanted to. Why did these people decide to buy into it? 
It wasn't because Nehemiah was a slick salesman. He was just a faithful servant who, asked, who as a cupbearer, asked God to give him favor. And God sent him. And there was revival that went into the leadership. It spread throughout the leadership, and it settled on the whole body as a whole. And Nehemiah saw revival. To have revival is to have a wholeness of change of things. It doesn't mean we don't remember the past. It doesn't mean we don't learn from the past. But we can't settle in the past. We've got to say, this is what we've learned. This is where we've been blessed. This is where it's been crazy. And now we have a wholehearted set of, you know what? We're moving forward. And you've got to buy into it. Because listen, I, can't go, I cannot go back to 1986, June 1st, when I preached my first sermon behind a lectern at the Baptist Evergreen Care Center Village. Because if I could, on human level, if I could, I'd say, I don't want to do that. If I knew that between July 1999, when I sold my house in, in Owasso and took my two kids to move in a parsonage in Kentucky while my wife finished up selling the house, finished up her severance package with BP Amico, knowing that once she got there and everything we lived off depended on the church, if I'd have known 14 months later they were going to cut my salary, they were going to do this, they were going to do that, I wouldn't have done it because, listen, when we left there, we spent even more money moving into a rent house in Owasso just to land somewhere familiar to get a job. And then six months later from that rent house, we moved to Inola because there was a church that needed a bivocational pastor. I lived in their parsonage. Nine months later, Baptist Dandruff hit the fan. So by February 2002, just two and a half years, my kids had been in five different houses four different schools, and every time we moved, whether it was to a church or from a church, we paid for the relocation. Nobody offered anything, and it hit us hard financially. In 1986, June 1, if I'd been standing there knowing that was going to happen, I would have said, nah, I ain't doing that. But yesterday, as me and Karen were driving back to the house after having uh, supper with Joey at the Black Bear Diner because that's where he wanted to go, and then he drove off in his car just to kind of wash his car and detail it and everything. We were talking about where we were as a family now. And I'm trying to drive down 412 without weeping, and she's trying not to weep. And I said, yeah, I said, you know, uh, our older son's in full-time ministry and got a wife, five little boys, being raised the things of God. Our daughter uh, is teaching in Minnesota. There, you know, all these relationships. And then Joey's home. We were overwhelmed with all this emotion that Joey was home. And, but listen... June 1st of 1986, I'd only been married about six months. Had we known what we know now, we probably would have said, ah, no, I'll just continue to do computer-aided drafting, carrying a bad account, and we'll just move on. But listen, every struggle, every name, every face that I got to know during those churches and things, and even the good experiences at Valley View, because listen, that was the best church to ever start at, where Miss Betty and her husband Bill were at. They were good to us. And I have to look back sometimes to those days to get through the other days. But Nehemiah, God just moved in his heart to send a resume to a Calvary Baptist, so to speak. And in that, the people one by one, leadership down, began to buy into what God was doing, not what Steve was doing or Nehemiah, but they bought into it. 
And we'll see before we finish Nehemiah. I mean, they're going to have a day where Ezra opens up the Bible and they read the Bible all day long. And then when they're done reading the Bible, they say, well, now that I've read the Bible to all y'all, because my name's Ezra, you need to go with Brian and Jim and Ken and David and Daryl and, and Joe and go in these little corners and just discuss everything you learned. Then they spent more time having Sunday school. So they had worship first and then Sunday school, so to speak. But there was a revival going on. Why? Because God chose a Nehemiah that was a cupbearer. said, Lord, just give me some favor. That's all I'm asking for. I didn't know what I signed up for when I came here, right? Any more than you knew what you signed up for, okay? But God's at work. And we learned last week if someone wants to resist that, they can resist that. Don't be, don't be distracted by that. I mean, try to address it, but, you know, don't be distracted by it. Just focus, because as we build our fellowship here, we're going to create those standards to protect from the outside, to create worship on the inside. Because ultimately what Nehemiah is going to do, he's going to shore up the walls, build the gates for one purpose, so that God's people once again can go and worship the one and only true God. That is my ultimate goal as your pastor, is to create a culture here through our boundaries, standards, through leadership, through all that, so that we can one day say, you know, man, I worship God today. God spoke to me. And then we leave these four walls and we go out and minister that joy, that kind of peace, that kind of righteousness, and all of a sudden the world says, what's going on down there? Well, they're having revival. Maybe not like we think about Revival like the day of Pentecost, that was a different, that was a birth really more than a revival. But listen, the only, way, the only reason these people need revival is because their worship has been dead for a long time. They've been in exile, they've been captive to whatever it was or whoever it was. And God sent Nehemiah there like Moses to set them free to worship the one only true God. Nehemiah registers the returning exiled people to track their needs and to gauge the progress. To the believer, what does this mean? I think I've gone over time. I apologize. Boundaries are healthy restrictors to outside influence. Boundaries are healthy indicators of giving responsibilities. Boundaries are designed to define, to define our purpose, which is God's glory. The names on the list with contact information, it promotes a go-by list to not only do ministry, but to find ministers to go with. The tabulating and the accounting of all the possessions and the people gave them direction to do God's work. And revival started with humility, surrender to God and what God wanted, to do it his way, for his glory, and therefore it resulted in God's great glory. It resulted in simple things like, I'm buying into that, I'll invest into that, I'll give time, I'll give my sweat equity. That's what it led to. What does this mean to a non-believer? Well, mankind by nature has broken the boundaries. They have broken the standard between us and God. Mankind by nature has offended and upset God. They have resisted 
what God wants. And that is that they would have a saving relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Man by nature has resisted that. God knows that mankind who is by nature a resistor and a hider from God, they need to know this. He knows you by name. He knows you by your needs. And he's used the church in general to call you out of darkness into light so that when we share the gospel, we're, 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 we're educating them and telling them, come to Jesus. We give an external call. And as we give that external call through whatever fashion form that God is ministering to you, as we give that external call uh, by the Spirit of God, God gives an internal draw. And that effectual call comes, and all of a sudden they come to you or me and say, what must I do to be saved? So they did on the day of Pentecost. Not an, even an invitation, no just as I am over there on the floor of the piano. And all of a sudden Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. And they say, excuse me, they interrupted the preaching. Excuse me, what must we do to be saved? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. Repent from your perverse generation to be baptized. They're wanting to believe in Jesus. That's revival. And lost people need to understand, God knows their name, he knows their needs, but he knows their greatest need is to be saved from the penalty of sin. So we would encourage them with the seeds that we throw that they would germinate on their hearts and bear fruit of repentance and faith. Otherwise, as we throw seed, just know that some of it's going to be snatched up by Satan. Some of it's going to be so shallow it won't produce anything. And some of the seed that you and I cast is just going to be choked up. But the promise is, is that some of that seed that falls on that good soil that only God knows will bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. So what has God called us to do? Be faithful seed throwers. Just be faithful seed throwers. Just throw them and see what God does. Because we don't know if that's good soil, rocky soil. We don't necessarily know. Throw the seed as the Lord leads you. So as a lost person, we would encourage you as we give this external call, come to Jesus to be saved from your sins lest you die and spend eternity without God in hell. That's what we would say, to be honest. So we would ask the lost people to obey the gospel. And we would ask God's people to reflect the gospel. To reflect the gospel. There's a standard. There's fellowship, there's accountability, there's direction, there's vision. And as we just follow these basic rules that Nehemiah is following, listen, revival will come in your heart, my heart. All of a sudden, you'll buy into it, I'll buy into it. Or all of a sudden, God will say, oh, I'm doing that. oh wow, oh, look what God's doing. That's how God works. Now, he's using one man as the catalyst for all this. But it's not because Nehemiah was real smart. It's not because Nehemiah was crafty. Nehemiah was just simply, obediently faithful, and he trusted God. That's all I can do. That's all you can do is obediently trust God and just be faithful with what God's given you to do at the time. And that's what we're going to do. Let me pray for you, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you for...